Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations, learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think, Pair, Share with me, Audrey Scott. Today's conversation will focus on mathematics, and to say it's not your mother's math class is a fascinating understatement. Since I remember quizzes being a staple in the math classes I was in, we'll open with a lighthearted get-to-know-you quiz for our guest today. First, I'm excited to introduce her. Chrissy Trinter is an Associate Professor of Mathematics Education of the ACE Teaching Fellows and in the Notre Dame Center for STEM Education, as well as a faculty member and a fellow of the Institute for Educational Initiatives. Her work focuses on teacher development, primarily on teacher leadership and curriculum design in the mathematics classroom. She is particularly interested in elements of curriculum and teaching that lie within the intersection of creativity and mathematics education. Prior to joining the Center for STEM Education, she was a faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University and a research scientist at the University of Virginia, where she earned her PhD. During this time, she was the lead author on several award-winning differentiated curriculum units. Dr. Trenter works with schools nationally and internationally on ways to provide all learners access to meaningful mathematics. So without further ado, welcome, Chrissy. Thank you for having me. So fun to get to talk to you, Audrey. Okay. It's so nice to see you too. And even though it's over Zoom, it's nice to see your smiling yes. face, Chrissy. So thank you. Um, thank you. We look forward to learning all sorts of things during this podcast, but we're going to begin with a couple of kind of like fun I don't know, you probably like those were not fun at all, but <laughs> um, but uh, just sort of some things to kind of warm us up, okay? So so choose your favorite, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, gosh, neither. <laughs> Sorry, do I have no, to pick one of those two? No, I think every, if, okay, you know what? Here, if I had to pick one, I would do Star Wars only because all of my colleagues like it, but uh, just, <laughs> but no, I, neither. Thank you. <laughs> I've just turned off half of the audience. <laughs> They're shutting it off right now. There are a couple. Uh, in- <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to hear here. <laughs> Delete. <laughs> Delete. <laughs> She's not <Cross> interested. <laughs> and, and yet the other half are like, she's my kind of lady. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I have heard that there's some people that really go all out for Star, Star Wars in the office. So I wasn't sure if you were yes. one of them. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, cake or ice cream? Oh, definitely ice cream. I'm an ice cream-aholic and I don't really care for cake, honestly. Same um, thing for me. But I love really... Yeah, that's what people are like always bringing donuts in the morning at the office. And I'm like, I'll actually mm. forego a donut so that I can have more ice cream later. <laughs> Absolutely. I would forego everything so I can have ice cream. I worked in an ice cream shop as a teenager and I ate all the profits. <laughs> so good. Oh, so uh, good. So, all right. I love it. Um, uh, so, so far you were saying everything right. So, those are definitely, <laughs> so, so you still want to interview me? Those are the right answers. <laughs> so you want to continue talking to me? Oh, good. Okay. Yes. We'll give what her a happens moment. to the people that say things wrong? <laughs> we have, we have a little lever. Have you seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Willy Wonka, where they go, yes. they go somewhere else. I got shot out. What is it? Veronica 
whatever blueberry yeah, blueberry, blueberry. <laughs> yeah, she was blue in some way okay so uh checkers or chess hmm that's a great question checkers or chess it just depends on the mood i'm in if i want to think chess if i just want to have fun checkers I like a lot. I actually have to learn how to play chess. I asked my husband to teach me how, so that's on the on the agenda. Okay, see, you passed with all those. <laughs> There's a few more fun ones. Um, as a child, crust or no crust? Ooh, as a child, crust or no crust? I don't really remember. I think no crust as a child, but honestly, my mother would have never spent the time to. She's a wonderful mother, but she wasn't going to spoil me with sh cutting the crust off so i think i probably just like ate around it and like left the crust i do it yourself or <laughs> <laughs> by requirement um, do you have a favorite childhood book hmm favorite childhood book gosh i guess the little prince maybe because my grandmother used to read it to us my grandparents were from france and um that was i don't know it's kind of a fond memory Maybe that That's one. a really nice one. That's a very nice one. Yeah, yeah, good. One other in the fun category. If you had to sing a song for karaoke, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Something very silent since my voice is so bad. <laughs> but... <laughs> That's a hard question. Yeah. I don't know that I can answer. I don't really know. <laughs> I would be completely stumped too because I'd Sorry. be like, people pay me not to sing. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, I get made, I get my family laughs at me when we sing happy birthday. I mean, it's really going to church, growing up when we would be in church <laughs> and my family all has really great singing voices and I really don't. And I, I love singing in church and I'm not kidding you. My siblings would turn and look at they would look at me with these faces like, please stop. Tough crowd. Tough crowd. So funny. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll give you a pass on the karaoke then. You should give yourself the pass and don't have me do it. Oh my God. Siblings are the best. Too funny. Okay. To lead us into the next part of the conversation, what did you want to be when you grew up? At one point when I was a child, I wanted to be a lawyer, but it was only, I really think it was only because my father used to tell me to be a lawyer since I always had an answer for everything. So, <laughs> so I think that kind of got stuck in my head. And then, yeah, I don't really know that I knew what I wanted to be. I was an artist and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be an artist. And then I had a great math teacher in high school and I thought, oh, maybe I'd be a math teacher. But I explored lots of different career paths. It's, it's interesting to me because you have an art background and also math. Those two subjects I don't normally mm. associate with each other. Are, mm -hmm. are you sort of, do you feel sort of unique in that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> unique is a really nice way of saying it. <laughs> uh, I mean that, I mean that oh, in the no. nicest way. I know. No, I know. Um, no, yes, definitely. I, yeah, I just always loved both really equally. So there, I really never had uh, more of an affinity for uh, one or the other. And I try to bring them together as much as I can in my work. Do you do anything cr like um, artistic creative now? Do you paint at all or draw or are, are there elements that you still like to foster? Yeah. So I, I honestly haven't painted in a while and I keep saying, I'm going to get back to it. My children are um, 10, 13 and 15. And I'm now just starting to see a potential for finding time to be able to do something like that. 
Um, I had done it really. I continued. So I love painting watercolors. Um, I like oils, but I think my heart's always been with watercolor. And um, I really had painted my whole life really until I started having children and um, my first child was born the third day of my PhD program. So oh my gosh. yeah, so it was just busy. So, <laughs> so then I had I two more children throughout the program and then, you know, continued on. So um, the past 15 years, I have not done much uh, painting, but uh, I'd love to get back into it. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> you blinked and 15 years later. Here yeah, here I am. Blinking this, yeah, right. On a a slightly more serious note, and if you do or don't have one, that's totally fine, but do you consider yourself to have an educational philosophy or is that not something that you formulate that way? So I'll give you another immediate reaction. (laughs) (laughs) What's my educational philosophy is love your students. So if you love your students, you'll figure out how to get them to learn. Um, I mean, that's not really a formal philosophy, certainly, but um, that's really the key to being a good teacher, in my opinion. And that's where it starts. And then more formally, uh, certainly, I think collaborative and active learning is, is very powerful, differentiating learning. So recognizing how how and when students want to learn different ways and really getting to know your students and knowing your discipline well and bringing those two together. Do you think that's a relatively new way to look at things? Did you feel like your teachers growing up got to know you or is that sort Hmm. of been a a shift in? I think some teachers did for sure. And then others maybe were more traditional um, in, in their approach to teaching kind of based on kind of with the focus more on the discipline and the, the strategies and the, um, the structure of things. But I definitely remember many teachers really getting to know us and, 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 you know, I should add and, and loving what you do. So if you don't love teaching, then that'll come across. Is there a moment when you kind of felt like that you loved teaching? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so my first teaching job was in 1998. I was, I, at the time I was, um, you had asked earlier, what did I want to be when I grew up? And I wasn't really sure. And I was trying to figure it out, you know, when I graduated college and I did a year of service in the Jesuit volunteer corps. And I really recognized my call to service in some way. And so I was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York city and trying to figure out where I was, you know, meant to be. And I'd always I had a seed planted a few different times in my life uh, for education, although nobody in my family were educators, but I was really kind of discerning trying to think about what I wanted to do. And, and I remembered coaching rowing uh, when I was in college and loving being with the students and teaching them how to row. And I thought maybe I should try teaching. So I found this job on like monster board or I forget what platform we used then to find jobs, but (laughs) It was basically it like was. finding it, right? Was that what it was called? I Monster think it was board? I think so. I think it was, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was a, a all-girls Catholic school in Boston. I thought, oh, well, why don't I just apply to that and see what happens <laughs> teaching math? And so I applied. And I remember going up to the school. I met Sister Maureen Kane, the principal. 
she gave me the job right there and and literally handed me the stack of books and said school starts in two weeks and I said okay so I drove back to New York City gave them my two-week notice rented a U-Haul drove back up to Boston moved in with some friends and I taught at this school called Monsignor Ryan Memorial High School in Dorchester Massachusetts South Boston Mm -hmm. and I just oh my gosh I loved that job it was the best job ever. I jumped out of bed every day to go to that job. Um, And that was really, really when education stole my heart. I just, that was it. I was done. So I'm still in touch with um, some of the girls who I taught at that school. Uh, And they're, you know, grown women with families and, but we just had a great time. That's a great story. Um, And I can tell, I know podcast audience can't see, but the smile on your face tells the story too, (laughs) that you're, you really, really enjoyed that. So that's great. I love hearing that. Um, When you, when someone loves their job, you can just, it just makes all the difference in the world. You're right. It is to me, I feel like that's half the battle, especially I'm going to be honest, full disclosure, um, math makes me nervous. (laughs) Um, Not that I didn't have probably decent teachers or whatever, but the more I hear about different ways of teaching now, I'm encouraged by all the steps forward that seems like you and others are taking to make math in general more accessible, more understandable, more relatable. I say thank you. Well, thank you. Hopefully we're trying. (laughs) You're doing a good job. I know you are. I'd love to sort of do a big picture look at a concept that I know is near and dear to your heart, but seemed more foreign to me, which is sort of mathematics and Catholic social teaching. Um, Mm -hmm. Am I correct in that, that that's something that you tie Mm -hmm. very closely together? And Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So I teach the A students, uh, the math content A students who are middle and high school teachers. Mm -hmm. They all teach in Catholic schools across the country. And so I really try to integrate these ideas of our Catholic faith and Catholic social teaching with both how you teach and the discipline of mathematics. And so for me, I feel like that's not my, how does that fit? Yeah. It's never been something that I recall people sort of bringing those two ideas together in in my Mm -hmm. opinion. And I realize it's been a few years, but it was more like, here are the numbers. Here's how you solve the problem. Memorize this, those kinds of things. And it just sort of didn't seem like a larger picture thing for me. Well, and you're actually describing one of the reasons why I do this is because so many people will talk about how math is intimidating or they say they're not a math person. And I don't think that everybody is going to love math, but I do think that we can help students feel like they have a place in the math classroom. I think when students are in a classroom and they feel anxious or like they don't fit in, then that speaks to our Catholic social teaching and our faith of call to community and the dignity of the individual. I feel like as teachers in Catholic schools, we really should be thinking about every student in there and how do they feel in this space? Because if they're uncomfortable, obviously, then they're not going to be successful. So that's the first step. So um, in my class, when I teach my students, um, we talk about these different ways of integrating our our faith life into our teaching. And so one of the ways is the way you teach, the how you teach, the choices you make when you teach. And so, for example, uh, in education literature and education research, uh, like we were talking earlier, uh, more recently, we see a lot of collaborative learning. So small group work, that social aspect of teaching and learning that um, we have seen can be really effective for helping students learn different concepts. In our ACE class, or in my class, we talk about 
um, the importance of bringing people together socially in this collaborative learning, both to learn the mathematics, but also build community and help them um, help one another. And uh, we're all in it together and we're all in it for the common good. So we talk about like the choices you make aren't just about learning the discipline, but it's about who we are as humanity. Um, and, and your classroom is your kind of world for the, that 45 minutes or whatever. So what do you want that to look like? And how do you want people to treat one another and why? And then another way I think about it is uh, students' dispositions toward mathematics. And this is what you were talking about, like your identity as a math person. So um, we want students to feel like they, are, they can be doers of mathematics. And that gets at what I was saying earlier. Um, it's just helping them live into their dignity while they're in your classroom. Um, if they can't, if they don't feel a sense of solidarity with their fellow students, their peers, and then their teacher, then you're never going to be able to get them to figure out how to divide fractions. So, <laughs> so, <I hear> <laughs> um, so I kind of bring it in in that area as well. And then a third way I bring it in is really through some of the content. So I expose my students in the in, in math education field. There's a whole body of, of work around social justice math. And what this is, is using math in basically authentic contexts, um, such as what is a living wage or let's say race relations or different kind of civic situations. Um, and then how can we use math to make sense of what's going on in the data? Um, and there's, I will say, there's a debate. There's a group of people who don't think that should be brought into the math classroom and a group of people who do think it should be brought into the math classroom. And I share that with my students and they get to read both sides of that debate because I really feel that as teachers, they need to decide who they are and what they want to bring into their classroom, regardless of whether they do or not the students need to learn the mathematics. And that's the debate on the other side. The people who say, no, this shouldn't be brought in say, you're watering down the math. You're actually not preparing them well for the real world. You think that you're empowering them, but it's getting too into the context and not enough into the discipline. Mm. Um, so there's two sides to the story, but I expose them to lesson plans and ways of thinking about using their community as a context for lessons when it's appropriate. And I, and I tell them not every topic is going to lend itself to some sort of a community context and you have to just decide what makes sense and, and why you want to do this. But I think that using math um, to do good in the world and to help people make sense of uh, situations that are going on in the world, I think is really important. If you feel like you're lost from the beginning or the, as you said, the doer of mathematics, I think that's an interesting concept um, because I would have said I'm not a doer of mathematics, um, <laughs> you know, and I know I'm not alone, but at the same time, um, I always felt like I wish that could be different. Mm -hmm. And now that I've seen how it's useful and how it's not just a bunch of numbers on a, a sheet of paper, you're not just doing it for memorization's sake. There's ways that can help you and your community in figuring out an application of it. Mm -hmm. um, is there, is that sort of a universal turn toward making or yes, is there? That's a huge push in mathematics education today um, is to try to make it authentic and meaningful uh, again, when it's appropriate, otherwise you're just trying to fit a square peg through a circular hole. There are times when the students need to learn a skill or a procedure and that's what they need to do. And you might not have an authentic or meaningful context for every topic, but you can still do things in the classroom that make it 
interesting, turn it into an investigation, um, using a manipulative or a technology or giving the students choice is very powerful. There's lots of ways of providing access to students so that they feel like they can be successful in the math classroom. I like that. I feel like that's very encouraging. It might help people to hear examples of how you implement Catholic social teaching into your own practice. Sure. So, yeah, so I think about my course in three movements. And the first one is that classroom culture, creating a community in the classroom. And that starts with introspection, because I think that um, if, if you're going to be able to teach somebody something, you need to understand kind of where you are and where your perspective and your lens Uh, whether it's on the discipline or just on your classroom community. So the goal of like our first class is to help the students really understand that students are coming into the class with all different backgrounds and experiences and families and insecurities and confidences. And all of those are going to play a role in the teaching and learning process. So it is so worth spending the time in the beginning of the school year to develop a really strong classroom community because it'll pay dividends later when they're trying to get somebody to factor a polynomial. Um, so, so my first, <laughs> I'm kidding. So my first class with them, um, we do a privilege activity and it really helps them kind of examine what privilege means and what it looks like, what privileges they have, what privileges their students may or may not have. And the privileges span a range. So whether it's the color of your skin, whether it's how many parents you have at home, whether you've had a teacher who believed in you, whether you've been successful at math before, there's a variety of privileges that students are bringing to the classroom. My students typically haven't really thought about it this way. And as a teacher, what does this mean? And then we do a collaborative learning activity where they have to engage in this activity in such a way that the only way to finish the activity is they're all put in groups. Everybody in their group has to complete the activity and it's too long to describe right now, but um, basically it's a nobody wins unless everybody wins. It's designed in that way. You know, now we've looked at privilege and all the different kind of walks of life that students are coming in with. Now imagine those students that we just examined are in this collaborative learning environment. So how do those, their, what we call classroom status, how does that impact their ability to collaborate with their peers and how they feel in this space? And then we tie it all together with the Corinthians reading about the eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And if one part suffers, every part suffers. And so that kind of whole first piece is about setting the foundation for your course. And so we don't get into much math the first day, uh, because what I have found over the years is, uh, you know, as a new teacher, you're so focused on the math right away and everything that you have to cover. And how do I teach this concept that sometimes you can miss the human part of it? And I think that's the more important part. Like I said, when we started this podcast, if you love your students, really get to know them, you're going to figure out how to teach that concept. So that's the first movement. And then the kind of middle part of the class, I really get into the research-based practices for teaching math, setting goals, the balance between procedural and conceptual fluency, the types of questions you asked. So there's eight practices in the math field that are research-based that are Um, you know, called these equitable math teaching practices. And so we focus on those and we we really focus on each one and how do you um, enact those in the classroom and pull your students in. 
and I integrate again that all with the Catholic social teaching and we reflect on how they are congruent and where they surface the, the Catholic social teaching tenets. And then, then once the, we're getting to the end of the course, I feel like now we are at a place where we have kind of a good handle on the discipline and how to teach and the foundational pieces. So now let's look at something that's a little bit more complex, which is really the application and the context. So that's when we get into um, activities where we're trying to contextualize the mathematics maybe in a social justice context or even just an authentic context. So for example, the students are living, my students are living in um, communities or houses across the country, all different cities. So like one activity that I do with them is I print out the newspapers from that day from all the different cities that they live in. And then they go through the newspaper and they create um, a lesson based on uh, some, one of the newspaper stories. And it has, and I give them criteria. It has to be really rich in the mathematics, it has to be authentic, but trying to help them see how you can use an authentic situation to teach the mathematics some of the students are really interested in doing something that's very uh, social justice oriented, you know, equity focused, and they do beautiful job with that. Some students um, are, you know, do something that's, that's just more kind of, you know, happening in their community is something that's maybe, maybe not as much of a, a civic, you know, a social justice situation, but uh, you know, there's a new theme park. So we're going to create, you know, um, a, a, an engaging lesson around that. And that's fine too. So mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So what would they make a new roller coaster? <laughs> so somebody actually taught, one of my students had a great unit uh, using roller coasters for calculus. It was really, he did such a nice job with it. Uh, yeah. The students that's really cool. enjoyed it. Yeah. And he brought in the Avengers too. Whoa. All yeah. right. <laughs> I can see it. It's an Avengers theme park. Oh, I like that. Hmm. We'll get some funding behind it. I think I think it's going to work. Do you find that your students um, are kind of surprised at the focus? Yes. Yeah, um, for sure. So what I find is with my students, and I I should also say that I, uh, so they're surprised at a couple of different things. One is uh, the collaborative nature of mathematics. So many of them will tell me over the years that they never saw math as something collaborative. It was something they did by themselves. It was right or wrong. So when they come to my class and they realize that there are some ways that you can make it very effectively collaborative, um, and certainly there's you know, you don't just kind of throw a problem in the middle of a table and say, everybody work on it. That's, that's ineffective, but, (laughs) but there's structures uh, that you can put in place and questions and designing the task in such a way. And not all tasks are group worthy. I should mention that too. Um, There are definitely many math tasks that you do do on your own. Yeah. Um, And eventually you got to do them all on your own. But when you're learning them, there are some very uh, well-designed group worthy tasks. So that's something that's typically new to them. And then uh, I love using non-routine problems with my students as well, meaning uh, something that you can't just grab an algorithm and solve or find the solution in a book or on Google. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a lot of really kind of thought provoking types of tasks that make you reason and critically think. And typically, you know, math majors aren't 
doing, I mean, they're doing, they're certainly critically thinking and reasoning, <laughs> but they're not doing these types of problems that are really non-routine mm-hmm. um, where they, they don't have an algorithm to use. They have to really think through. So I mm-hmm. like doing that because I think it gives them a good challenge. Um, and I really like having them feel the way their students feel when there's, st- even if their students are getting a math problem that yeah. does have an algorithm, but they don't know what it is. So they, they have that kind of um, cognitive dissonance. Like they're just a little like, Oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's helpful yeah. for the teachers to feel that. And then also feel the joy when they get through it and, and they realize uh, what happened. So, you know, the solution. So that's mm-hmm. always a surprise. And then, uh, yeah, the context, the kind of authentic meaning making math, like using, using authentic situations or social justice issues. That's also something that's typically pretty new to them. And I think they take up really beautifully. I, I like that idea of sort of like getting them out of their head a little bit and, and maybe making them feel a little of that trepidation that um, mm-hmm. you know, nobody likes to stay there for very long, but that's something that you're like, okay, now I feel for that other person. A yeah. Little bit. There's, there's a, body of work in math education that we focus on called productive struggle. And Mm. the idea is that you need to struggle, but you need to struggle productively. So as a teacher, you have to find that sweet spot where students are working hard and grappling, but they're not crying and feeling dejected (laughs) this lady (laughs) so so uh so you need to give them enough supports so that they can productively struggle through it and feel that sense of belonging and success um so when i'm teaching teachers they already know how to solve the middle and high school problems um so i have to think of ways to have them productively struggle so that they know what that feels like and that they can then identify it and be able to use that strategy with their students as well. There's an equity piece that is very important to you, is, is there not? And can you um, build on that? So, yeah, I mean, I guess just along those lines, I just think all people should feel that they are able to thrive and flourish. And so, like I was saying, that should drive all of our decision-making. So, so I certainly feel that um, that idea of human flourishing really drives a need for diversity and need for giving people opportunity for equity, for justice. Um, I, I, that's just kind of how I think about it. So I, um, I think it's helpful, at least for me, to make that really explicit. Like that's the first part. And then that's why we do all of these other things. Yeah. And actually maybe we can tie that into, um, the idea of achievement gaps and opportunity gaps. Oh yeah. Often people will hear about achievement gaps. Like if we have a newspaper story uh, about math scores and the story will say there's an achievement gap and the achievement gap is between, you know, white students and students of color. And that's really important that we have that data and we need to know this so that we can rectify it. Right. But that's the kind of output. And so the opportunity gap is the fact that people are not getting the same opportunities and that's why we have that output. And so as teachers, it's really important for us to be thinking about the opportunity gaps because that's the input and that's what we have control over. So sometimes if we look too far out, like a, we just stop at the achievement gap, you may just kind of feel like, well, that's, I don't know where, I don't know what, to, what I can do about that. But what you can do is reduce the opportunity gap of our students. So within your classroom, within your school, how can you reduce opportunity gaps? 
I work with schools at the systems level and we look at how to reduce opportunity gaps in the mathematics classroom from, um, you know, I'd say a, a whole district level. So for example, are students getting tracked? Are they not tracked? What makes sense for your school uh, in terms of math programming? From the classroom level as a teacher, uh, we wanna look at our students in the class and is everybody getting an opportunity to learn? So as a teacher, this is something that uh, we try to do all the time. And um, whether, again, it's at your classroom level or your school level. There's two follow-ups I'd like to ask from that. Because one, I want to introduce differentiated instruction mm -hmm. in that conversation. And the other is, are there concrete ways that you can do that? Or can you give us an example or two of how you might work to reduce an opportunity gap? Well, that the differentiated instruction is one way. So uh, differentiated instruction just really is a philosophy of education. It's a philosophy of teaching. So uh, it's really what I've been kind of talking about, but I haven't used those words. Um, and it's just really about getting to know your students, getting to know what their preferences are. How do they, you know, when, you know, one of my colleagues uses this example that I like um, that says like, when you get a newspaper, when the newspaper gets delivered to your house, do you read every single word from the beginning to the end? Do you, Audrey? No. 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 What do you typically do when you get the newspaper? Um, read the headlines. Read the headlines and then you pick Go to a section what's interesting, right? right. right. Yeah. So similarly, students have different interests so they might have a preference. And that's not to say... Um, they're going to have that preference or that interest every day. And that's who they are. It's not to, to pigeonhole them, mm -hmm. but, you know, designing a lesson such that um, I give my students choices and maybe you get the choice of doing these math problems on the laptop. There's a station over there that has paper. There's another station that you're, you have manipulatives. As long as it's designed that all of those areas have the same learning goal, and that the teacher is able to monitor that everybody's meeting the same learning goal, but they're maybe approaching it in different ways. So that's just, I mean, one of many examples, but just one example of how you might provide students more of an opportunity. Because I, you know, I might be a student who really um, needs to, uh, for this particular topic, being able to, like you said, be visually see and hold on to these, this area model and piece it together might be much more powerful for me than if I'm just working with the numbers without that. Um, and again, it is, is not to say you just kind of throw these in front of your students and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of teacher input and guidance in all those ways. And the teacher has to bring it all together to make sure that everybody is learning the concept and the procedure. Um, but you're giving students opportunity to access the mathematics. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, thanks for the clarification there. And actually a good example. And um, I'm wondering, um, do you get, what's the feedback from teachers, maybe new and seasoned? Um, are, is there some pushback or they feel like, oh, this is going to be, how could I possibly monitor all that? Yeah. So great question. Um, it, once they really understand it and recognize that, so one of the misconceptions about differentiating instruction is that it's a different lesson plan for every kid in the class, or you have to do it all the time for everything. Like it, it becomes kind of bigger than it needs to be. Um, the, the professor I, I really learned this from about differentiated instruction at UVA, um, Carol Tomlinson will say, 
it's good teaching. So what I try to help teachers realize is you're doing a lot of this already. It's not like this is a new thing. This is not wildly different than what you're doing. It doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Take baby steps, try something small. Um, when they do that, when they try a small thing, they make a small tweak, they just kind of enhance what they're already doing and make one small change. Okay. They are bought in right away and they realize and they really see the effect. Mm. Pre-assessment is very important in differentiating instruction. So being able to get a sense for where students are and then use that data to inform your instruction. Um, that's another area that a lot of teachers, uh, not a lot of teachers, but some teachers uh, don't feel they have the time for. So then when we're able to help teachers recognize low prep, easy ways of sneaking in some pre-assessment, and then they use that data to then design a lesson, it's mm -hmm. so powerful. I think I just love watching human flourishing. It's such a gift as a teacher to get to experience that with students. There's so many different ways of seeing mathematics. Many of us remember a very traditional approach. And now we have so much more information about how students access mathematics. And absolutely, algorithms are important. But there's an importance to this balance between concept and procedure and, and tying those two closely together. And so when we think about our heterogeneous students in our classroom, we need to be thinking about what are they coming in with? What do they already know mathematically? What are their life experiences? How are they feeling? When you give them a window to see it through and you welcome them into a math conversation, mm -hmm. the shoulders can relax mm -hmm. a little bit. Yes, yes. Sort of take away that fear factor. Yes. I often find that people in just general are searching for that with mathematics. How is this meaningful to me? There are definitely ways of making it more meaningful to students. And that's absolutely something that we do. And even even as I mean, even as small as Starbucks coffee and the prices and you know just little things that you can do little tweaks the context being their school or a movie or just something that that definitely is worth um, taking the extra step to do that. Sometimes, like I said, there are just concepts and procedures that we learn out of context, but maybe they can feed back into a more meaningful context later or within a unit somewhere. When possible and when appropriate, absolutely. I heard somebody say once, people go into teaching because they, they want to give and they want to do good. Like people want to help each other. So right. um, it's just a matter of creating the space to make that happen. Everything I do, I think, is I'm trying to provide students opportunity to be invited into the community of mathematics. I really just take such joy in human flourishing. And that's what I see as a teacher's job, no matter what subject they teach. I think that's great, actually. I think that might be the perfect way to end. Thank you, Chrissy. Really okay, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. I, I had a great time talking to you. And honestly, I don't think I would have ever said that about a conversation that included <laughs> math. math in thank any way, you. No, it was so fun to talk to you. All right, thanks. All right, bye, Audrey. Bye. Again, a special thank you to Chrissy Trencher for the great conversation. And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, 
off we go.